0: Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I read something that was quite humorous, but at the end of it, it caused me to make an observation that was quite serious. I'm going to share you the observation, and then I'm going to read this little humorous thing to you. Here's the observation church can become a place where participation is minimal, where perceptions are unreasonable, and where worship is invisible. Again, church can become a place where participation is minimal, perceptions are unreasonable, and worship is invisible. Now I'm going to read this little thing. It's Job descriptions of five people on a church staff or perceived job descriptions by some of people including pastor, assistant pastor, music minister, youth pastor, and church secretary. Here it is. Pastor. Able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. More powerful than a locomotive. Faster than a speeding bullet. Walks on water. Gives counsel to God. Assistant pastor. Pastor able to leap short buildings in a single bound, as powerful as a switch engine, just as fast as a speeding bullet, walks on water when the sea is calm, talks with God. Minister of Music leaps short buildings with a running start, almost as powerful as a switch engine, faster than a speeding BB, Is occasionally addressed by God, walks on water if he knows where the tree stumps are. Youth pastor runs into small buildings, (laughs) recognizes locomotives two out of three times, uses a squirt gun, knows how to use a water fountain, mumbles to himself. Church secretary lifts buildings to walk under them, kicks locomotives off the track, catches speeding bullets in her teeth, and freezes water with a single glance. When God speaks, she says, May I ask who's calling? So you see what I mean? Church can become a place where participation is minimal, perceptions unreasonable, and worship is invisible. Now, this is not that kind of a church. That I know. But because that can become the issue, people are asking this question Church, what good is it? The first study in this series, we sought to briefly answer that by saying everyone needs it. It's the place where God's people gather so we're accountable. It's the place where God's principles are given so we can grow. It's the place where God's purpose for our life is uncovered. And it's the place where God's presence is found in a very unique way. I received a letter from someone. Not long ago, who doesn't go to church anywhere, he used to go to church, but for the last three years he said, I, I don't go to any church, I'm just at home and I read my Bible and he's come to certain conclusions about himself and churches and God and life. And so there's no accountability. Uh, he's not answerable to any person. He's basically turned a personal relationship with Christ into a private relationship with Christ and he it's the elijah complex you know i'm the only prophet and there's no one else out there who knows anything but me we all need each other the second week we looked at matthew 16 and jesus said i will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it so jesus said i'm starting this thing i get to name it that's the church I built it, I own it, and I will keep it. This morning, the question before us is what in Jesus' own mind should that look like? See, if it's His church, what is that church in His mind and from His thinking, His idea, what's it supposed to be like? A lot of times I'll read literature that church organizations put out or I'll hear certain leaders from organizations or denominations talk about going back to the New Testament. We're a New Testament church. We want to be like the church in the book of Acts. It's fine. That's good. But it's not far enough back because Corinth was a New Testament church. Remember that. You don't want to be like them. Now, let's go back further past the book of Acts to the very one who founded the church, Jesus himself. What does he have to say about it? A lot. And it's in a prayer, in John 17, the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the New Testament, where he is praying for his followers and those who will believe in him through the testimony of his followers. So he's praying for the church. So the question I want to ask and attempt to answer this week and next week is what kind of church would Jesus attend? And my answer will be founded firmly in the text itself so that it's not based upon opinion but upon exactly what Jesus said. What kind of church would Jesus attend? And there's four main characteristics that are found in John 17. Number one, the church that Jesus would attend is one that radiates the glory of God. Number two, a church that Jesus would attend is one that reveals the truth of God. Number three, a church that Jesus would attend is one that rescues the enemies of God. And number four, a church that Jesus would attend is one that rallies over the love of God. Those are the four legs that we will build this prayer upon as we uncover it this week and next week. Let's, let's look at the first this morning. church that Jesus would attend is one that radiates the glory of God. Look at verse 1 in John 17. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may also glorify you. Down to verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory that I had with you before the world was. Go down to verse 9, I pray for them, them being his disciples, I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. Down to verse 22. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Eight times in this prayer, eight times that word glorify or glorified or glory appears. What does that mean? Because it's, it, it sounds like a very churchy sounding word. It's important to know exactly what it means for this reason. It is the glory of the Father that motivated Jesus' entire life. It's what motivated Him every day on His life on this earth. Well, to glory or to glorify or glorified means two things. And both of these senses are found in the text. Number one, God's glory is the visible expression of God. The visible expression of God. It's the unfiltered, turned up to 10, not decaffeinated, full strength expression of the presence of God. It's the outward wow that brings the inward whoa if anybody comes in contact with it. It's what Isaiah said. He saw the Lord lifted up. Isaiah 6, I saw the Lord in a vision high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple, and the angel said, Holy, 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 the whole earth is full of His glory. And Isaiah said, Woe is me. Woe is me. The outward wow that brings the inward woe. It's what Moses wanted, right? When he said This isn't enough, Lord. I want to see your glory. I want the outward wow. And God had to say, Now Moses, whoa, hold up here. You can't see my glory. No man can see my face and live. So there's one aspect of the glory of God that is the visible expression of God that we will all one day see. But second, and really more for our purpose this morning. It's the valued attention toward God. Attention toward God. The word doxazo means to focus on, to point attention to, to have a good opinion of, or to make renown. So look at verse 4. I have glorified you on the earth. Look at verse 6. I have manifested your name. I've pointed to you, Father, on every occasion. I, I put you, Father, on center stage and I pointed the spotlight at you and made you renowned. That's what we're to do. That's not only what Jesus did, but Jesus gives that goal to His followers. So, What is to be the primary goal of the church? It's to glorify God, to point to God, to honor God, to make God renowned, to make Him famous so that people's opinions about God are made better because of our lifestyle. That's what it means to glorify God. People's opinions about God are made better because of our lifestyle. You say, how do we do that? Two ways that Jesus points to. Two ways to glorify Him. Number one, by declaration. By declaration. By verbally making Him renowned. Jesus always did this. I've been amazed as I've read through the Gospel of John in particular. How many times Jesus would say now... What I'm telling you isn't something I made up. It's what the Father told me to tell you. And he said, I always honor him. I always do those things that please him. He was always giving verbal declaration to people about the will of the Father. So let's do that. Let's make Jesus famous in this town. Let's make the Lord renowned. By our witness, by our declaration, by what we tell people. And, and and let's move it for a second from out there to right here. Not just our witness before the world, but our worship as we gather together. The verbal declarations enter into that. I'll tell you, there, there's one thing we probably should never do when we gather together for a worship service. Ready? This is it. out to the Lord. (sniffs) This is God we're dealing with. We make a declaration that he is worthy and righteous and to be honored. That's part of glorifying God. And I'll tell you, when we worship, this is why worship, one of the reasons it's so cool. Worship is the one exercise that is completely, if it's done right, selfless. Because all the attention, all the focus is off of us and onto Him. If, I've got to say this, if it's true worship. If it's not true worship, then the focus is us. And, and it comes out like, like this. I didn't like that song. Or... I don't like guitars or I do like guitars or I don't like drums or or I do like drums or I don't like that choir or I do want the choir. Who cares? It's about him. It's for him. The issue isn't how it made you feel or I feel. How did it make him feel? I've always loved the story about President Lyndon Johnson who had an aide, a special aide in the White House and the special aide was invited to the White House for supper and Bill, I forget his last name, Bill was asked to pray for the food. So he did. He bowed his head, quietly was thanking God as he was praying. And President Lyndon Johnson on the other end of the table couldn't hear him adequately. He interrupted his prayer saying, speak up, Bill. And Bill, without even looking up, said, I was not addressing you, Mr. President. Hey, that's pretty cool huh, to say that to the president. You know, I wasn't talking to you. This isn't about you right now. This isn't a press gathering. I'm talking to God. And we remember that when we worship it's about Him. What did the Lord think of my worship, our worship today, as I declared Him? Back in 1928, uh, Evelyn Underhill wrote this to the Church of England. I'll share one sentence. We are drifting toward a religion which keeps its eye on humanity rather than on deity. That was 1928. We're drifting toward a religion in 1928 that focuses on humanity rather than deity. Can I just say we've arrived? So, we glorify God by declarations. What we say about Him to the world, what we say about Him when we're gathered together. Second, we glorify Him by demonstration, by what we do, by what we do in life. Look at verse 4. I want you to see this from Jesus' own words itself. I have glorified you on the earth. How? We finish the sentence. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. So, how do you glorify God? By finishing the work He gave you to do. Do you know that God has a very unique plan and purpose that only you can accomplish? Uh, Like a a, a thumbprint or fingerprint or snowflake. It's very individual. And it's something that God has for you to do that only you can adequately accomplish. And it, it can't really get done quite without your involvement. And I say, find out what that is and do it with all of your heart. I want you to understand that God's plan and purpose for you isn't just heaven. It's not just, well, I'm saved so I'm going to heaven. So so, what are you going to do until you get there? What's the ride going to be like? You know, if heaven was the only goal for your life, you know what would happen the very moment you receive Christ as your Savior? Yeah. You just keel over dead. You come forward. We pray with you. The undertakers would drag you out and you go to heaven immediately, right? Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Go directly to heaven. But that's not God's only goal. Before you get there, He has some plan and some purpose. And I say, discover it with all your might. Find out why God put me on this earth. So that's priority number one. Church should radiate the glory of God. The church Jesus would attend is a group of people that makes it all about Him. That turns the me generation into the he generation, so to speak. Second, number two. It's one that reveals the truth of God. Look at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world they were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And now, now because they have kept your word, now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and they have known surely that I came, that I came forth from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Now please don't, don't not understand this. Please see the flow of this. Jesus is saying, You, Father, gave me words of truth that I passed on to them, my followers. They received those words and they have not only kept them but they have passed them down. And Jesus will mention that later on as we follow the text through. So... Any church Jesus would attend must do the same, and that is regularly speak the Word of God, not the opinions of men. It's noteworthy to me that high on the list of what's important in a a church gathering or in gathering together, that's what's on the most important list is the Word of God. I say it's interesting to me because that's not always on many people's most important list in finding a church. What's often on the list is how close is it to where I live, and do they have programs for my children, etc., etc. But in many people's view, finding the truth of God preached undiluted, undistorted, is not high on the list. It is high on Jesus' list. Why? Because the Word of God is the source of all truth. It's the source of all truth. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your Word is truth. Now, that explains a lot. It explains why we do what we do. Skip, how come every time I come it's the same? You sing a few songs and you talk. And you talk. And you keep talking and preaching and opening the Bible. Can't you mix it up and, and have a raffle one day or <laughs> interpretive dance one day? Just picturing that is frightening, isn't it? There was an article in the Albuquerque Journal some time back. I cut it out. I won't read the article to you, but I just want to read the heading of the article. Ready? Church, a trendy place for singles seeking dates. Man, that puts a whole spin on things. Church, a trendy place for singles seeking dates. Well, Jesus said, go into all nations and make disciples of them, teaching them, teaching them to observe whatever I have commanded you. So here's Jesus anticipating his followers and the church that he will build and the glory of God and the truth of God are high on his list. And that's exactly what we find when we turn to the book of Acts. We find his prayer being answered. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, a text that we're going to uncover in more detail later on. And they gave themselves continually to the apostles' doctrine, breaking of bread, prayer or fellowship and prayer. Those are the four things they gave themselves to. What was one on the list? Number one on the list? The Apostles Doctrine. They gave themselves continually to the Apostles Doctrine. Why was that number one on the list? Why doesn't it say, and they gave themselves number one to love? Or they gave themselves number one to singing? Or they gave themselves number one to community improvement? Want to know why? Because they gave themselves to the apostles' doctrine because it's the source of everything else. It's the Bible that teaches us how to love. It's the Bible that teaches us motivation for singing. It's the Bible that teaches us how to get involved and interface with the community. It's the Bible that teaches us how to raise children, attitudes, everything. That is number one on the list of what they practiced as they were glorifying God. That's what they gave themselves to. So, the church that Jesus would attend is one that radiates the glory of God and reveals the truth of God. But I don't want to just stop with that. We'll uncover the next two next week. I want to show you what will happen, what truth produces. Look at verse 13. It produces joy. Jesus continues in His prayer, verse 13, But now I come to you, And these things I speak in the world that they, they being the disciples, that's the antecedent, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. You follow? Jesus gave them truth words from the Father. And having received those words, they became really joyful, even though the world hated them and hassled them. So, so, how can a person have joy in the midst of a world that by and large doesn't love God and doesn't love those who stand up for the truth of God? How do you find joy surrounded by that? How do you, how do you be a joyful person in the midst of a world that's falling apart? Answer? The Word. Truth. It brings joy. There's basically only two types of people. There's people of the world and there's people of the Word. And they're very different from one another. People of the world have a sense of happiness from time to time, but it's circumstantial. It might go up, it might go down. Things are good today, I'm happy. Things are bad tomorrow, I'm really bummed out. That's how it works. They're prisoners to their circumstances because the circumstances change like always. But, but people of the Word can have a sense of joy that is the same and sometimes even increasing in the worst of situations because the one their trust is in is in Jesus Christ who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. There's a huge difference between just happiness that goes up and down and Joy. Joy. What's your joy like? Does joy mark you? Well, if it's rooted in truth, it definitely will. And, and here's why: as we expose ourselves to truth and read the Word, we discover that uh, there's something a lot better than this present world up ahead. That makes us joyful. That's what's that's what's going to happen after we're gone from here. And in the meantime, we have plenty of promises and resources to sustain us right now until we get there. All of that brings joy. Jesus said in John 16, In the world you will have trouble. You can underline that in your Bible. In the world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You see the difference between... Person of the world and the person of the word. Person of the world, they're like a thermometer. They just register what's going on. They go up or down. Person of the word is like a thermostat. They set it. They set that pace. They set the temperature. It's an ever-fixed mark of joy. Let me just brag a little bit about you. One of the things I love so much about you is your joy. You're fanatics. Honestly. You guys are a bunch of fanatics. You get happy about worship. You get happy about Bible study. You clap at a sermon. Maybe you're just happy it's over. I don't know. But you're, you get excited over it. And it's wonderful to see. And I've had guest speakers who come here and go, okay, your church is like the best church to be a guest speaker at. The people are so into the Word. They're so excited about it. And you should be. You should be. And you are. Charles Spurgeon said, Our happy God should be worshipped by a happy people. A cheerful people is in keeping with his nature and his acts. And you know what's produced that joy in you? The scripture. Scripture reveals to you God's plan and God's promises and heaven and all of the future and all of the resources till then. And it's produced. In you, an abiding sense of joy and the outward expression as well. Psalm 119. I'm just going to read a few verses to you. Happy are the people who follow the law of the Lord. Happy are those who obey His decrees and search for Him with all their hearts. Make me walk along the path of your commands for that is where my happiness is found. That's why the joy is there. Interesting, a Tyndale Publishers, a publisher that I worked with for years, put out a poll some years back and published some results, and they found, and I'm quoting, 90% of Bible readers feel at peace all or most of the time, as compared to 58% who read less than once a month. Now that's fascinating. They feel at peace all or most of the time, a much greater percentage. Also, 92% of frequent Bible readers report knowing a clear purpose and meaning for their life, whereas only 69% of infrequent Bible readers report the same. So let me tell you, the church that Jesus would attend is the place where joy-producing truth is proclaimed. Also, and finally, and we'll close, truth produces not just joy, but holiness. Holiness. Uh, Verse 15. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world, and for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Now there's a there's another religious sounding word, sanctification, sanctify. It, it, it's a good word. Don't lose that word. It means to be holy, it means to be separate. In particular, to be separate from sin, to be different from. How different? Are you from the world? Well, if you're a person of the Word, you're very different from the world. Your values are different. So here's the gist of what Jesus is praying to His Father here. Father, the world is deceptive. It's powerfully evil. But you can purify them through your Word. How does that work? How does it work? Well, here's how it works. When we expose ourselves to truth, something happens. Now, you'll track as, as soon as I describe what happens. Sometimes you read it, and it's so comforting. You read a promise, and you go, Oh, I needed that so much right now in my life. That's so comforting to me. Other times you read it, and it doesn't comfort you. It confronts you. And you go, "Ooh, I don't like that. I'm not going to underline that verse. No, I'm not going to memorize that verse. Uh, That's real personal, that verse. Sometimes it comforts, sometimes it confronts. Or as one person put it, sometimes the Bible will comfort the afflicted and other times it will afflict the comfortable. We know what that's like. You know, I've even had people, I kid you not, at least five, maybe seven times in my years as a preacher, teacher, People have come up to me accusing me of following them through the week. Or of receiving a phone call from their wife or husband or somebody who told me about them and I'm directing my sermon at them that day. And I will say, with all due respect, sir or ma'am, I don't even know you, let alone have the time to follow you through the week. What is happening? The truth is cutting, confronting, working. It's what Hebrews 4 describes. The Word of God is living. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Now, can I just say, I believe that every good sermon should do that. I believe every good sermon should at some point cut and confront. Not for the sake of cutting, not for the sake of pain, not just for the sake of inducing guilt, but to cut away those things which are displeasing to the Lord. That's why Paul said to young Timothy, a man just starting in the ministry, Timothy, preach the word of God. Be persistent whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct rebuke and encourage your people with good teaching. Get the balance there. Encouragement, rebuking, admonishment, all together. Now can I just, before we close, say let that happen. Let that happen. Don't be the kind of listener who says, I only like it when the sermons make me feel really good about myself. That's shallow. You can get that in a good movie. Let God, through the Holy Spirit, have His way. So even if it's like, oh man, Uh, uh, let it happen. Let it happen. Let Him cut. Let Him cleanse. Jesus said to His disciples, now you are clean. And it means cut the rizzo, to cut away and cleanse. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken to you. So. In conclusion, a church that Jesus would attend is one where God is glorified by declaration, by praise, where it's about Him more than anything else. And also one in which the congregation responds to the truth by a holy lifestyle. Glory and truth. I read an article that made me very sad. As I tell you, you'll, you'll understand why. True story. couple in, I think, Boston, if I remember correctly, had a little baby and invited friends over for a christening party for their child. The baby was placed on the bed in the guest room, and it was a flurry of activity as their friends came and they walked in the guest room and threw their coat on the bed, not recognizing the baby was there and then another coat, and then another coat, and another coat, and a pile of coats, and the baby died. And I think it was the Boston newspaper the next day that told about the baby that was smothered to death at his own party. I sometimes think that God is smothered at his own party. I sometimes think that some want to make a big party about everything but God in his glory. And so, two things to walk away with, two charges this morning. Number one, learn to glorify God. Learn to glorify God. When we gather together and we're engaging in worship, if it's worship, engage. Engage. Fully engage. Fully declare. And then go out and make Him famous. Declare Him out there. And second... Let the Word of God produce in you the kind of real joy better than the superficial happiness of the world that goes up and down, true abiding joy even in the worst of times and let it do its work of comforting and confronting. Heavenly Father, as we close this morning really hanging with, without finishing the last two points that we'll cover next week, we've had enough to digest for this week to understand that the purpose of your calling us out of the world and placing us together as a group of called out ones, the church, is to give glory to the Father, to make Him famous, to let the name of Jesus Christ, His Son be more famous and renowned by our declaration and by our demonstration. And To let the truth, the Word of God, have its way in us. That produces real joy and a real sense of separation from sin. Make us a holy people. One that you're pleased with. In Jesus' name, amen.